Uh, as we begin today, and I know we have a, a lot uh, to, to, to do today, so I, I don't want to uh, take up too much time, but, you know, this, this past week, uh, the um, Supreme Court took up the abortion case, that is the abortion case from Mississippi, and I just wanted to say a couple of words about that. Um, you know, throughout biblical recorded history, one of the things that God called out and judged the most was the wickedness of child sacrifice. Obviously, the people of God sacrificing their children to Molech and things like that. Um, the, the, the nations around Israel, the Canaanites, who were very devoted to child sacrifice. Even within the Christmas story, we have uh, Herod killing all the babies in Bethlehem to try to wipe out the Messiah. Uh, what we learn from that, I think, first and foremost, is Satan hates babies. Satan wants babies to die. And then secondly, that God hates the sacrifice of babies. And I believe that what is going on in our nation and has been going on is uh, nothing less than sacrificing children to the idols of sexuality and success and comfort. And so I know our family has been praying for years that the Lord would stop this uh, horrible, horrible act that goes on in our country that is abortion. I am encouraged uh, at the possibility that some ground could be gained. I think it, not, not to give a civics lesson here, but, you know, just so we're all clear, if, if the, the Supreme Court rules uh, in a certain way, it is not that abortion would become illegal in this country. That's not what we're talking about here, but it would allow states uh, to take control. It would, it would push that down into the states, and there would be some states where abortion would be illegal. And praise God, some, some babies might be saved through that. So as a church, uh, I, I want us to take these things very seriously. I hope you are praying about these things, at least sometimes, uh, personally and with your family. Um, I, you know, one of the things that's often said these days is, you know, well, oh, Christians, they're just pro-birth. They're not really pro-life. And amen and amen. Let's, let's be pro-life all the way. Let's Let's look to take care of the poor and unwed moms and all of those things. But you can't be pro-life without at least being pro-birth. It has to start there. And so we at Hope Bible Church, the elders, we talked about this on Thursday, that we wanted to, to just mention this and, and to pray. I, I, I am very hopeful that we might be about to make up some ground in this area uh, in, our, in our country. I, my ultimate prayer would be that one day we would be building uh, memorials to all of the babies who have been sacrificed um, over the, the, the decades that this injustice has been allowed to legally be perpetrated. So we'll see, and uh, God have mercy on us. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll begin. Father, I, we know there's so many things that are unjust in our society, and, and, and ultimately we look to you, Jesus, to, to return and to make right all that is wrong. Father, in this age, when abortion is so, so prevalent in our society, Father, we would ask that you would allow that at the highest levels of our government, steps would be taken 
where abortion would become less common. And God, we ultimately would pray as your people that you would eliminate this injustice entirely from our society. Father, we pray that you would use scientific advances and even just revival in the hearts of people to recognize uh, that it is indeed the murder of an unborn person. And Lord, we know these are, these are big things. Father, we know there's a lot of blindness in our society about a lot of different things. And Father, we ultimately would pray that you would, you would bring about revival in the hearts of people, that they would understand who Jesus is and that, that justice would begin to flow out of that understanding. But Father, in the meantime, we pray that you might move through even unbelievers to make decisions that are just right. And God, we believe that it is right that the murder of the unborn should be uh, outlawed. So God, we, we ask that you would work in the hearts of these justices. Father, that you would do your work. Um, God, help us to be courageous. Lord, help us to not be afraid of reactions, uh, but to stand on what is right and trust in your word. And uh, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Uh, Two weeks ago, it's kind of in, in, incongruous, incongruous. Uh, we were talking about Jesus in the last few days of his life, the last day of his life before his, his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection. At the time of nativity, uh, we will get around to the nativity story as we always do. Um, but for now, we're going we're gonna to pick up in John chapter 15. Am I a little echoey? Does somebody, do you, is that just me? Does it not sound so equity? Okay, well, I'm just going with it then. Um, last time we were together, last time I spoke, uh, we finished up in John chapter 14, and Jesus said, rise and let us go from here. And so it gives us just a little bit of an opportunity, a little bit of a transition, which I'm, I'm thankful for, to move out of Jesus talking about comfort uh, in chapter 14 to Jesus giving some instruction in chapter 15, as they walk down uh, past the temple into what is called the Cadron Valley to where the Garden of Gethsemane is and where Jesus will ultimately submit to arrest at the hands of the soldiers. Jesus begins this instruction with a parable that if, if you've been in the church for very long or at all, you've probably heard before. It is the parable of the vine. Now, we don't live in a part of the world that has a lot of vines, uh, Jesus and his disciples did, and the hills of Judea would have been filled with olive trees and grapevines, and uh, they were very familiar with vines, so all of this would have made a lot of sense to them. Some of you probably are up on vine tending. Uh, I'm not, so I did a little reading this week. There's one remarkable vine in particular at Hampton Court in London. It's called the Great Vine, not the grapevine, the grapevine. Uh, it was planted in 1768 by a guy named Capability Brown. Uh, some of you guys who are looking for good, solid baby names, I think Capability should uh, come back into uh, uh, common use these days. I like that one a lot. Call him, you know, little, little kid running around named Cape. Um, that makes this vine, by the way, 1768, that makes this vine almost 250 years old. All right, so uh, it was in fashion back then. You would plant the root, and you would let it grow into a greenhouse. And 
The, the vine would live there. During November and December, this vine is fully dormant. It looks just like a dead thing, kind of hanging in the, the ceiling of the greenhouse. No green leaves. During that time, the vine is pruned. It's taken care of. Non-productive productive branches are removed. When flowers begin to appear in May, some of the flowers are removed. And then, even once some of the grapes start to appear, they take away some of the grapes so that bigger, uh, sweeter grapes may grow. The grapes are picked in August. This vine, by the way, the root is now 13 feet around, according to what I read. Uh, this vine still, 250 years later, produces an average of 600 pounds of grapes a year, and the record crop was produced in 2001. It produced 845 pounds of grapes. All right, so just from our vine, our brief vine learning this morning, we can tell that vines require a lot, a lot, a lot of work in order to be fruitful. Dead branches have to be removed, and even apparently good fruit has to be removed so that uh, uh, more fruit can grow. All right, so then the imagery of the vine is something that was common in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but especially in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, Israel is often referred to as a vine. All right, I'm going to read a passage to you and then I'm going to ask you to turn with me to a passage. You're going to have to uh, turn to a passage in the Old Testament. Let me read, before you turn to the second passage, let me read this one. Just listen to this one. I don't even want you to turn there. Uh, this one is in Psalm 80, 8 and 9. This is, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the rivers. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? All right, so that's Psalm 80. Now, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're able, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, because this is probably one of the most famous times that God compares Israel to a vine. It's kind of a song. Isaiah chapter 5, we're going we're gonna to read a little bit through there before we get to John 15, because I think that there's a good chance that Jesus has this in mind as he's speaking to his disciples. John 15, verses 1 and 2, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it out of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Okay, so in both of these passages then, Israel is pictured as this vine that got planted in a, in a fertile ground and God fed it and God watered it. By the way, we read all the way back in like the book of Deuteronomy, we, we read about how God provides for Israel, the former and the latter rains, everything she needed to have not just crops that were sustaining for her, you know, to just be living, like bread, but even crops that made life nice, like grapes for wine and olive oil to cook your food and to light your houses. God provided all of this for her, and he intended her to be fruitful. He intended for Israel to be this fruitful vine, this conduit through which 
all the nations would be blessed. But she didn't bear good fruit. Let me read to you, continuing on in in verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? For I have looked for it to yield grapes. Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds, and no rain shall rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Down further, I won't read it, you can read it later. Isaiah then begins to pronounce a series of woes on Israel, judgments, because she did not produce good fruit. She didn't just produce no fruit, by the way, she produced bad fruit. All right, so then moving into the New Testament, Jesus famously says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. And grapes gathered from thorn bush, or grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles. So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then later on, in the parable of soils, Jesus explains about the seed that fell on the thorny soil. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So turn with me to John chapter 15. What we're going to see in John 15, which we also see in the whole Bible, is that God expects his people to produce good fruit. I believe that is the uh, the point of the passage that we're going to see this morning. So we're going to talk about a lot of concepts that are essential to life with Christ while he is gone from here. Okay, so physically Jesus is going to ascend back to the Father. He is preparing his followers, both those 11 young men and us, for this time while he's going to be gone. So we're going to read about the importance of being attached to the vine. We're going to read about the work of the Father in pruning and purging the vine. And we're going to talk about the utmost importance of abiding in the vine. I'll just go ahead and tell you, the command in this passage is not to produce fruit. The command is to abide in the vine, who is Jesus Christ and then allow that fruit to come out of you. And so these are all instructions that Jesus is giving so that we may bear good fruit. And if there's any doubt, look all the way down to verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All right, so John 15 contains instructions about how to bear good fruit. Let me read to you. Let's read the passage. Look at it. If you're in John 15, we will read verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All right, for lack of a better starting point, I thought we would begin today by just dealing with the main characters. I didn't know what else to call them, the main characters. There's three main characters in this parable. First of all, it's Jesus. Jesus is the vine. In the Greek, John emphasizes, John actually says in the Greek, uh, I am the vine, the true one. That's the way he states it. So, in a world full of false vines, Jesus is the only true vine. The vine is the source of life to the branches. Now, even going back to Isaiah 5, as you guys know, I am a lover of all things Israel. I love the people. I love the land. I understand that the Bible teaches a glorious future, for Israel is God's chosen nation, and one day they will be a conduit of blessing once again to all the nations as they bear fruit. But let me be clear. They are not the true vine. They failed to bear fruit that God intended them to bear. And because of that, they are under his discipline, and they are still under his discipline thousands of years later. So attaching oneself to Israel today does not bring you life. And then we also know lost people attach themselves to false vines. In spite of whatever you may think, you are not independent. We human beings are branches. We need a vine to be alive. And when we sinned, when we rejected God, we looked away from the true vine and we sought other vines. Wealth, health, education, friendships, you know the list. None of these things are meant to be your vine. Jesus is the one and only vine. The second character is the Father. God the Father is the vine dresser. The King James Version calls him the husbandman. He's more than just a farmer. He's the owner or the protector of the land. He may work directly with the vine, or he may use assistance like pastors and elders and teachers and disciplers to help him tend the vine. And the vine dresser cares for the vine. He protects the vine so that the vine may bear much fruit. And the father is a really very important part of this parable. Don't skip over the, the father. And we're going to spend some time there in just a few minutes. Because that work of the father in protecting and pruning the vine is what helps us trust him through the things that are going to come our way. And then finally, professing Christians are the branches. And we see this in verse 5, clearly, I am the vine, you are the branches. There are only two types of branches here. There are branches that bear fruit, and there are branches that do not. Branches that are attached to the vine, uh, that are not attached to the vine, are dead branches. If you have boys, if, there's a, if there was an instruction manual to come with boys, 
it should include that there will be a lot of sticks in your yard. There are always sticks in my yard. There are sticks piled up at my door. There are sticks lying all over the place. And you know what they all are? They are dead, and they will not clean up themselves. All of those sticks, none of those sticks are going to plant themselves and grow a tree. They're just going to lay there until I get ready to mow the lawn and then have somebody go out there and pick up all of those sticks. And then magically more sticks appear, and they're just as dead as the sticks before. Sticks, branches, unattached from the vine, are as helpless as those sticks in the yard, though perhaps less useful. Number two, the work of the vine dresser. So this is, this is where things get a little troubling with this passage, okay? Verse 2 has caused a lot of consternation in church history. It's often cited by those who believe that Christians can lose their salvation because it says, Jesus says, there are branches in him that do not bear fruit and that the Father removes those fruitless branches. And then down in verse 6, it says they are taken away and they are thrown into the fire. So how are we to understand these branches that are said to be in him, in Christ, and that are cast into a fiery hell. Well, first of all, we need to understand that the Father is doing work that is essential to the life of the vine. Just like that vine dresser at the Great Vine in Hampton Court, the Father is working, even when the vine seems dead and lifeless, to be removing unhelpful branches. So he is both protecting the vine and pruning the vine. So let's talk about God the Father protecting the vine. Is it possible that there could be a real, spirit-filled, Christ-united Christian who is not bearing fruit but is attached to the vine that would be removed, taken away, and burned? And I think the answer is no. I think you have to read this passage with chapter 13 in mind, which is when Judas left the room. Judas is no longer there. There were 12 disciples, now there are 11. They would have considered Judas to be one of them, and now he is not. That's not the only time we've seen this in John. John 6, 66 says, After this, many disciples followed him no more. They turned around. So these were disciples. They were people who were following Jesus, who after his hard sayings in John chapter 6 said, We are not going to do this anymore. We're out. And this is common throughout the New Testament. There are always going to be people in this age who attach themselves to the church, who appear righteous, but are not a part of the true church. We see this in the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, where an enemy sows weeds among God's uh, crops. And the, the, the servants come and say, should we remove them now? And God says, no, wait till the end of the age, and then they will grow up together, and it will be obvious. And it's the same kind of language. They will be removed and, and thrown into the fire. Uh, 1 John 2.19, the same writer here says, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but it went out, they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So plainly, there will be some who will go out from the people of God, and it will become plain that they were not a part of the people of God. Hebrews 6 speaks of those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, but have fallen away. So it seems to me that these branches are people who are removed, 
but they have once upon a time joined themselves to the body of Christ, joined themselves to the name of Christ without ever actually joining themselves to Christ. Most likely, as much as it breaks my heart, there are probably some in here who are not a part of the true vine. It's not difficult to appear saved. It's even possible, as we read in Hebrews chapter 6, to enjoy the fruits of fellowship, to enjoy those, those spiritual blessings and still not know Christ. And this is key. This is, I think, the point of this difficult passage here. There is simply no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. There may be a little bit of fruit, a tiny bit of fruit, but the Father will ultimately not tolerate those in whom no fruit is found. Verse 2 says the Father will take them away. So for 2,000 years now, the Father has allowed the wheat to grow with the weeds, and eventually God's patience is going to run out, and those false branches, those dead branches, are going to be removed. And for the sake of our souls, every Christian ought to ask once in a while, is my life bearing the fruit of Jesus Christ? Because everyone who loves Christ bears some fruit. Now, it would be good to ask the question, I think, at this point, what is fruit? And this is a long discussion. Lots of discussion about this throughout church history. Some have wanted to locate the fruit just in evangelism, that we should all be bearing the fruit of evangelism, winning souls to Christ. I think it is at least that, but I think it's more. There are the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of attitude, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of Christ should be manifesting itself in our attitudes, how we respond, how we think. There are the fruits of good works, the fruits of action. So just so we're clear, it's not just about good intentions. Jesus says in Matthew 16, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who's in heaven. John the Baptist preached that his hearers should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul tells the Colossians, Bear fruit in every good work. And Jesus expects us to actually bear the fruit of caring for the needy. Just go read Isaiah 5. Go read Isaiah 58. God's judgment on Israel was very specific. You are not caring for the needy among you, and so I am going to cut you off. Don't be tempted to think that fruit can just be located in your heart. Your fruits should grow and manifest themselves in actions. Let me also say, your fruit-bearing does not save you. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. However, fruit bears evidence of discipleship. It proves that we are disciples. Verse 8 in our passage, but this, by this my God is glorified, my Father is glorified, that you bear my fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, it is not my desire as your pastor in any way to lay burdens on you. Maybe you're saying, Pastor, following Christ is hard enough. Now you're telling me I have to bear fruit. First of all, these aren't my words. These are Christ's words. Right? Secondly, bearing good fruit is evidence of saving faith. If you're not bearing fruit, then I am concerned for your soul, and you should be too. But third, if you look down in verse 11, which we'll get to next week, bearing fruit is the path to joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. As hard as it may be for you to, 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 to think of right now, as overwhelmed as you may be, Jesus is saying, no, this is the way to joy. Bearing fruit, abiding in me, 
is the way to joy. The second kind of work that the vine dresser does is pruning. According to verse 8, the father prunes the branches that are attached to the vine so that they will bear much fruit, much fruit. You know, it's interesting to me too, and trying not to preach that video about the great vine rather than preaching John 15. You got to be careful with these parables. You don't want to go too far. But I mean, that vine looks pretty dead. They showed a picture of it in like February. It's a dead vine. It's not dead. It's alive. It does strike me that Jesus is not saying you have to be bearing fruit all the time. Like a vine has periods of, of being dormant, has periods where hard things are happening to it so that it can bear much fruit. When, when I watch that video, it's so interesting to me that what she's clipping away looks like perfectly good grapes. Why are you taking away that grape? She's removing good fruit. I was thinking about that. Okay, last reference to the, the great vine. But, um, you know, that God would actually take away from us what seems like really good fruit. Like, why would he do that? Why would he take away, like, I, you know, you get moved, or you lose an, a ministry opportunity, or, or something happens where all of a sudden you don't have fruit anymore. And it's like, ah, that seemed really good. That seemed really special. The Father prunes the spiritual branches. If you bear fruit, God the Father has promised to prune you for your good and so that you may produce much fruit. So that means he may cleanse away some sin in your life that is keeping you from producing fruit, from the joy of fellowship. He may take away some idols, those things that are tempting you, those, those false vines. He may pull some of those away. He may prune you so that you can have an honest view of yourself. Because what we're going to see is, without Christ, you can't do anything. And he may just be pruning you to convince you to hold more tightly to the vine. And this is accomplished through troubles, suffering, sickness, loss, grieving, need. I do think that Jesus is telling his disciples this. Again, keeping this in mind, in the context of he's preparing them. And you know what? People are going to leave your fellowship. And you know what? You're going to have really hard times. And I think he's saying, just so you know, the Father is at work when those things happen. And it is for your good. Mark down Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. Go read that later. The pruning, the discipline as the writer of Hebrews calls it, that is so much a part of the follower of Christ. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews said, if you're not being disciplined, not pruned there, but disciplined, then you should be concerned because a good father disciplines his children. How does the father accomplish this pruning? Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Judas is gone, but these 11 young men are clean. Why? Because of the word. And this is key brothers and sisters, trials and suffering, pruning and discipline alone do not produce God's purposes. It is the word taking root in the soul through those difficulties that accomplishes the cleaning. If your eyes aren't open to the truth of God's word, then there's no good pruning. It's pruning plus the word equals our cleansing. Just honestly, how many times have you ever heard anybody testify? You know, life was going really good. I was just breezing along, you know, no trials, nothing, and God just really opened up my eyes to the goodness of his salvation and how he provides. Nobody ever says that. 
That's, that's, not a, that's not a testimony you hear, at least I can't think of any. No, you find most Christians testifying that in the midst of great difficulty, God revealed himself in new and precious ways. So listen, all of you branches in here this morning. Your father is the vine dresser. He's the master vine dresser. He's way better than that lady out at Hampton Court. He knows what he's doing. And if he has brought great suffering, he is doing so so that you may bear much fruit. So how do we bear fruit? That's the, the point of the passage is the importance of fruit. Now we can ask the question, how does one bear fruit? Verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit in itself... Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If that's not highlighted in your Bible, if that's not starred, if you've got a new crispy version, go ahead and just mark that one down. How do we abide? How do we, how do we bear fruit? We abide in the vine. Thankfully, we are, we are not left to our own resources. The command in this passage, praise God, is not, now, go bear fruit. Pop out an apple or a watermelon. Go. The command here is to abide. Remain in Christ. Jesus actually says a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. If so far you are concerned about your need to bear fruit, and I hope you are, The way to bear fruit is to abide in the vine who is Jesus Christ. It's interesting, because he also said earlier, hard verses, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you abide, you will bear fruit. So abide means to remain, to live in. It's the same idea of abiding in a house. If we connect it to the vine metaphor, it means that we are remaining connected to Christ, constantly allowing the vineness of Christ to flow through us. Thinking of Christ, speaking of Christ. Listen to some of Jesus' words. Uh, John's, John speaking about abiding. John eight thirty one. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So how do we abide? We abide in God's word. John fifteen nine. in just a few verses, says, abide in my love. Abide in my word. Abide in my love. 1 John 2, 6, same writer, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Obedience. Word, love, obedience. You guys, we're all abiders. Humans are abiders by nature. Some abide in the internet or social media on their phones, and and that is a real, genuine source of abiding these days. I gotta tell you, when you see someone sitting there staring at their phone, they are abiding. We are all abiding all the time. Bad relationships, cable news. Man, there's a lot of people abiding in cable news today. Anytime you allow your mind to fixate on greed or lust or pride or anger or bitterness, you are abiding. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if we got any abiders in here, don't think that like you just need to start abiding. You are abiding. We need to start abiding in Christ. Practically speaking, abiding in Christ is reading, hearing, listening to, studying God's word. Bible intake is abiding. Abiding in Christ is living in love, love for God, love for others. We abide in Christ when we replace sinful thoughts and actions with righteous, Christ-like thoughts and actions. 
Very simply, we abide in Christ when we do what he says. Abiding does not mean that you have to withdraw from the world. Jesus is not calling you to a monastic life. You can't bear the fruit of good works if you are somewhere meditating in the Himalayas. Jesus is calling his followers to attach ourselves to him in the midst of daily life. Praise God. I mean, if, if you're hearing these words right now, you are abiding, but you can abide tomorrow at work or school. You can abide in his word in love and obedience and in the good fruit that he produces in your life. But here's the thing. This is the hard part for us. It's hard for me. When I'm not abiding, I can't do anything. Jesus says at the end of verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in Christ, you will produce fruit. Apart from Christ, nothing. It doesn't matter how spectacular you think you are. If you're not abiding in Christ, you can't do anything. We have a toaster at my house. We're, we're big on toast. Man, a little bit of toast, toasted with butter. It's good. It's good eating. If you unplug that toaster, it can't do anything. It is useless. I mean, if you leave the bread in there, it'll get hard, but for other reasons. If you're abiding in something other than Christ the vine, you're an unplugged toaster. You can't do anything. Jesus doesn't say, if you abide in me, you can do some better things. If you abide in me, you can do some more things. He says, if you don't abide in me, you can't do anything. All things that you do separate from the vine, Jesus considers under the category of not a thing. Here's another big point that I think we all need to hear. You and I aren't the vine. We are not the vine. Jesus is the vine. You shouldn't be trying to get anybody to abide in you. Branches direct other branches to the vine. As your pastor, I am not the vine. That may seem like a funny thing to say. Maybe some of you are like, that's good because I'm not thinking about abiding in you. That's great. But there are some pastors out there right now who are like, you connect yourselves to me and you're connecting yourselves to the vine. And that's a lie. We don't connect ourselves to people. Mom and dad, you're not the vine. Your main objective with your children is to get them to abide in the true vine. So for every single one of us, no human being other than Jesus can be our vine. You don't want to be starting to abide in dead branches. That's really foolish. And then think about this in light of eternity. All of us are going to spend eternity somewhere. We are immortal beings, and we saw in John 5 that we are all going to get new bodies, either bodies fitted for glory or bodies fitted for judgment. For those of us who get bodies fitted for glory, we've spent this one little tiny blip where we have this opportunity by faith to bear fruit in Christ. And that fruit, I believe the Bible is clear, will be treasure in heaven. So everything we do in this life that is not connected to the vine is a huge waste of valuable time. If you're acting separated from the vine, you're not producing fruit. You're not doing what the Father intends for you to do. And once again, Jesus makes this promise. We've seen this. He says it in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and, and, and it will be done for you. If you're plugged into Christ and you have his vineness flowing through you, you can ask whatever you need, and he will provide it so that you can produce fruits and prove to be his disciples. Abide, bear fruit. Don't abide, nothing. All right, so we're going to leave off here for this week. We'll keep moving down through this passage. Let me just land at verse 8. I've mentioned it a time or two already. 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So those who abide in the vine glorify the Father, bear much fruit, and prove to be his disciples. You guys, this is one of those places where Jesus is, he's just not being very mysterious. You know, you, you really can't leave here this morning and be like, I don't, I don't know what he meant there. If you abide in Christ, you will bear much fruit and you will prove to be his disciples. And I'd like to, to close this morning just by directing you to that sort of made-up word that I've mentioned uh, several times, vineness. It was a nightmare with spell correct this week, trying to write that down every time. If Jesus is the vine, then we should be letting his vineness flow through us because abiding in Jesus makes us a conduit of blessing. I would argue that in the same way that Israel was supposed to be that conduit of blessing in the Old Testament, God has now raised up individuals in the church to be that same vine, that same conduit of blessing to those around us. And this is not just spiritual talk. When we are abiding in Christ and our, His vineness is flowing through us, then that's going to manifest itself in every situation we'll face. All, it's been interesting this week, just those moments when I feel the tension rising in my heart and I've been studying about abiding and vineness all week and just, just that thought of like, no, I, I can abide in Christ in this situation and it can alter how I respond, how I interact with my family, how we interact at work, how we treat strangers, how we deal with stress, how we deal with suffering. The goal is to bear fruit. The goal is to bear fruit, but the only command is to abide in Christ, which leads us to the question, are we abiding? Lord, let us be a church that abides corporately in Christ. Are we a conduit for his vineness? One way that we abide in Christ here at Hope is by coming to the Lord table, Lord's table every week. I would say that the Lord's table is a way for us to abide. We remain in Christ through that because Christ himself gave it to us as a reminder, and he knew that we would have to fight to abide. So this little meal, meager, meager as it is, is meant to remind us that Jesus gave his body, shed his blood on our behalf, by the way, remembering the cross is essential to abiding. In fact, you cannot abide if you have not trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins. So, in a sense, we abide every week, we abide as we partake in this little meal. We have time together each week as, as Tyler plays, and our brothers and sisters hand out the, the bread and the cup, and I hope that you spend time during that time, thinking and praying, confessing sin, meditating over the word that's just been proclaimed. But this morning, during this time, I'd like to direct you just to meditate upon your need to be connected to Christ the vine. How often this week have I lived disconnected from the vine? How often do I do things apart from him? Have I tried to be the vine for someone else? Am I fighting to attach myself to false vines, which are also called idols. These things aren't just mistakes. They're sins, and they need to be confessed. It's actually an offense to our Lord when we seek out other vines and abide in them. But he promises forgiveness to those who ask. So ask this morning. And finally, if you're not a Christian, if you're not connected to the vine and you do not produce fruit, this meal is meaningless for you. It's a ritual, not a reminder. I would actually say 
This Lord's Supper could be a false vine if you depend on it apart from Christ. So if that's you, I would ask for you to refrain from taking this meal. Seek out someone around you or one of our elders and find out what it means to become a part of the vine. The guys are going to come up now, whoever's handing out the bread and the cup. And uh, when you receive it, just hang on to that. And uh, I'll come back up here in a minute, read from 1 Corinthians 11, and we will all partake together.